Medicare is turning 40. The cheapest, simplest and fairest health insurance scheme Australia's ever had. A great legacy of the Labor Party. The Liberal Party is the party of lower taxes. We always have been, we always will be because we manage the economy more effectively. And the Australian government collects more money from HECS than it does from the petroleum resource rent tax. Thank you, children. You're the backbone of our economy, not the gas industry. I'm not sure I buy the AI excuse, but I'll leave the commentating on that up to the experts. I just hope that lessons are learned from this. The expert has concluded with overwhelming certainty that the phrase chanted during that protest as recorded on the audio and visual files was where's the Jews. The decision by Australia, the US, Canada and Italy to pause funding for the agency UNRWA comes after it announced on Friday that it had sacked several members of its staff over their alleged involvement in the October 7 attacks by Hamas against Israel. We should have learned by now that the live sheep trade involves unacceptable risks to animal welfare and sheep can't be long-distance freight to one of the hottest and most unstable parts uh, of the world. I'm an old boy at school, and my son is also an old boy, and the intention was always that I'd have a grandson, but I won't bring him to a co-ed school. The rap. Joining me to wrap the week that was Monica Attard, former host of Media Watch, now Professor of Journalism at the University of Technology, Sydney. Very warm welcome back to you, Monica. Hey, Andy, how you going? Good. And making his Friday rap debut, he's even got a <laughs> spivvy suit on. I, I just expect he would. Uh, Mark Stefano, rear window and technology columnist with the Australian Financial Review. Great for you to dress up for us there, Mark. No problem, Andy Park. It's Friday afternoon and TGIF beers after this. It's my right to disconnect. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm excited. We're going to come to, to that in just a moment. But let's start off with, uh, well, Canberra, the Canberra bubble in the sense of the policy machinations that seem to be emanating from the nation's capital. Labor served up its stage three tax cuts really with a wedge of lemon uh, with the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, finally conceding. Uh, on commercial TV this morning that they won't be taking these tax cuts away from people. Uh, Mark, your colleague Phil Curry wrote a pretty good piece of analysis today writing about how when Labor pulled the rug out from the Liberal Party by adopting and upping the ante on tax cuts proposed by Howard and Costello, that was back in 2007, in an election promise they, they went on to lose. So has Albo got his mojo back with this policy change, notwithstanding the uh, broken promise? Yeah, well, I actually, firstly, it's funny you just you sort of characterise this as a Canberra bubble story because I think it's like this is like anything but. You know, this is if you speak to anybody about what they've been sort of thinking about and doing this week, other than getting a ticket into the two hundred million dollar Powerball, I think that people would be very interested in, you know, are these tax cuts going to pass? Sort of the amended ones, and so how much am I going to get after July one? Uh, and Albanese, as you say, a wedge of lemon, he's, it's a spectacular wedge, one of the best we've seen in politics in recent years, probably since Scott Morrison when he was prime minister in 2019, when he, when he first actually designed these stage one, two and three tax cuts, they essentially designed it so all three had to be voted on and that wedged Labor at the time. And they didn't want to sort of be seen to be voting against tax cuts for low income earners. Um, you know, Dutton essentially waved the white flag on on uh, commercial TV this morning. So this is going to get this is going to get passed, and it wasn't just Peter Dutton. You know, Pauline Hanson, the leader of One Nation, on Wednesday came out and said she'd support them. 
Um, everyone has seen the writing on the wall and, and the, the idea of the quote-unquote broken promise has has not really stuck to Albanese when it comes to this issue because it's so broadly popular. Yeah, I wonder, Monica, I mean, Peter Dutton and his colleagues have been leaning pretty heavily on this idea that Albo can't be trusted after his changes to these uh, stage three tax cuts. Uh, you know, the my word is my bond quote being uh, the expectation that that will rattle around in political advertising until the next election. What do you think has more resonance with voters? And as Mark said, for people that are out, in, you know, in Australia land doing their business away from Canberra, do, they, do you think that it's trust in politicians that has more resonance or just hard, cold cash in their pocket at tax time? Look, I, I think basically this whole episode has slayed the old broken promise curse, you know, that has um, that we've had to put up with over, the, over, over so many years on so many issues with such regularity that people are saying, you know, look, this has shown that when a promise doesn't stick, when it doesn't hold, when it when it no longer makes sense, then break it, and it's fine. So long as you know the, that there isn't one group of people that ends up paying um, a disproportionate price for the broken promise. And I, 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 I mean, this is this has been, I think, fantastic news on that front that we are no longer we we no longer, hopefully, anyway, at least in the future, are bound by these ridiculous notions that once a politician says something that they have to stick by when it's bad policy, when it's not good for the country and it's not good for individuals. So I, I, I see, you know, all upside in this, frankly. Yeah, I wonder, and I have this is purely speculative. I have no evidence for this, but I do wonder if Labor, when taken to uh, the last election uh, to match uh, the coalition's promises on stage three tax cuts, knew this because you know there is no bad guy when ten million Australians get money in their pocket. Like it's it's an easy promise that you can say, well, we can move the goalposts later. There's a fairly low collateral damage in doing that. Speaking of elections, uh, I'll start with you, Mark. Do you think we'll get one this year, as we're going to be talking about in PM? Yeah, I do, actually. You know, if I were a gambling man, I'd say it's short. the odds are shortening. And um, I'd say that sometime in the spring, Albanese will um, pull the ripcord because it's not just the tax cuts which are broadly popular and we're yet to really see how it follows through into polling, but... You know, Graham Parrott, who's a Queensland backbencher, again, this is a this is an anecdote that that came through when he he appeared on Sky News earlier this year. Graham Parrott, you know, he's he's in Queensland, and Queensland is a battleground for Labor. And he said that, you know, he was embarrassed to mention stage three tax cuts before the backflip, and now he's out there door knocking, promoting them, and talking about it. So they've got something to hang their their hat on here. The second thing that that they'll be very cognizant on is is the fact that wages are growing. You know, they've they've delivered a couple of budget surpluses so far. And there's a sort of a mood if the economy is is humming and markets are strong, you know, the stock market's at an all-time high today. I think that Albanese, you know, it's the economy stupid when it comes to elections, will sort of look at it and think, you know, maybe now is the time because as we all know, you you call an election when you can win one. Mm. And when, you know, the opposition is in the weakest space possible, the suggestion there being that perhaps if it's earlier, then it gives uh, less space for Peter Dutton to improve his uh, polling. What do you think, Monica, an election before or after Christmas? 
Uh, I have absolutely no idea, but my sense would be that, uh, just picking up at that last point that you made there, Andy, which I think is really relevant here, that the Coalition still don't have a slam-dunk electable leader and they, you know, Labor will be looking at that and taking that into account, I mean, which is not to say that Dutton hasn't done, you know, well on some issues and, and, and you know, better better than anybody expected, but he's still not seen as somebody who is prime ministerial material, and I think that will be a, a big factor in their minds to uh, to squeeze the opposition of any time to find uh, an, an alternative. Let's move on now. The other story-making headlines today, New South Wales Police held a press conference earlier today to reveal that forensic analysis of video and audio from the pro-Palestinian Opera House protest in October found no evidence of a deeply offensive anti-Semitic phrase. It's really a revolting phrase. I think we all know what it is. It's been mentioned in the news. I don't feel like I need to repeat it. Monica, I mean, apparently the... The police said they, there was evidence that people were saying, quote, where's the Jews, end quote, which mm. I don't have any, any understanding about the context really. But for some people, they've questioned whether this phrase is really any better. How do you understand this story? Well, it, look, it, pretty much like everybody else, I mean, it's confusing because we don't really know the intent behind what anybody said. But where's the Jews could be just as bad. You know, one interpretation, of course, of where's the Jews could be that, you know, are they here protesting with us? But this protest was, of course, before Israel began to retaliate against Hamas. So, you know, I mean, I don't know where, I don't know criminal law, but if where's the Jews was a call to find and harm Jews, surely that's criminal. You know, surely that is as almost as bad. It doesn't have the same really vile connotations as gas the Jews, let me say it. But uh, but where's the Jews is, is pretty threatening. It's, it would be very, very threatening to that community. As for that threshold uh, that you mentioned, uh, Mark, according to police, using the original expression could have met this threshold for criminal prosecution. Uh, mm. uh, at the time of the protests, Israel ha hadn't even begun its offensive in Gaza, which I think made the spectacle somewhat more unsettling for many people. Do you think public sentiment has shifted around this in the intervening months? It's difficult to sort of step outside your side of the street, if if can I, if I can use a crude expression here, because obviously the two sides don't tend to to mix to to get a really kind of clear objective centre ground. But what what do you think? Is there a shift in public sentiment in recent days and weeks? Yeah, so I think to keep it into context, you know, this was October nine. It was like a day and a half after the attacks um, on October seven, and it was a band of. Palestinian flag-waving Palestinian sort of group outside the Opera House, which was bathed in the colours of of the Israeli flag. Where's the Jews? To me, is a slam dunk in terms of if it's threatening. Of course, it was, and I think that you know we saw in the days after you know that disgusting, disgraceful attack. You know, we saw um, Palestinian flag sort of draped cars hooning around Bondi. Um, it's, of course, it's threatening. The, the the problem with the threshold of hate speech laws is that I'm not a free speech absolutist, but as a journalist, I really dislike the sort of encroachment of of the way that hate speech gets gets bandied about as something that we should crack down on. Um, you know, in Victoria, in the last few years, there's been this very sort of strong crackdown on the Nazi salute. Um, and again, this is not something that probably 10 years ago we were talking about. 
Um, and I, I don't have a I don't have a sort of an easy solution. But I think that we need to debate whether we want to start criminalising speech um, and especially sort of actions that that um, that are threatening to people. I think that the problem also now has become over the last few months is that Israel's very bloody crackdown on on Hamas in Israel has caused a lot of people to um, turn this issue into a very much a pitch battle. Are you with Palestine? Are you against Palestine? Are you with Israel or against Israel? And Penny Wong has done actually a fantastic job sort of threading the needle by trying to sort of keep feet in both camps. But I think that if the bloody crackdown continues in that country, you know, these sort of issues are just going to keep rumbling on. There will be more weekend protests. Um, and, you know, whether the laws have caught up with, you know, the the the, um, the decade that we're in where social media and videos can be doctored with things like AI and things like selective editing and Photoshop, I think that um, we're, we're in a bit of a, a pickle and the New South Wales police probably took too long, in my view, to sort of get to this conclusion but here we are. Mm. I want to pick you up on the point about AI. Uh, if you just mm. join me on RN Drive, it's 21 minutes past five. Uh, UTS Professor of Journalism, Monica Attard, and AFR columnist, Mark DiStefano, are here. Photoshop fails are always funny until they kind of get serious. And that's kind of what we saw this week. Channel 9 News was forced to apologise uh, for using a digitally altered image of Victorian MP Georgie Purcell. The alterations of this image sort of made her chest look bigger. Uh, it made her um, clothes look different. That was the obvious thing that I could see straight away. Uh, it transformed her white dress into a, a midriff. Uh, interestingly, Georgie uh, tweeted straight afterwards saying, I'm, I've actually got a tattooed uh, belly, which is not visible in the photoshopped uh, version that Channel 9 put out. Anyway, yeah, Monica, in a statement, Channel 9 blamed an automation process by Photoshop uh, the program used by their graphics team, which makes it even more a bit dystopian, this idea that <laughs> this software automatically enlarged uh, women's breasts in in their material they put out. But do you buy this? Because Adobe and Channel Line kind of came to blows about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought, I thought, frankly, it was a bit of a pathetic excuse proffered by Nine, I have to say. Uh, you know, it amounts to saying either we trust AI to deliver ethically uh, and accurately or it's saying we don't really care. I mean, we'll put it we'll put it out there anyway. Neither position is defensible. You know, we know that Photoshop can throw up sexist, tropist kind of depictions of of, of, of women. Um, it's been tested by a number of people, and even in the wake of this particular episode with Georgie Purcell, a number of people out there have been sleuthing away and put up their um, their findings on Twitter. And you know, they're, they're pretty awful depictions that, that it can throw up. But at the end of the day, there needs to be human intervention before anything is done with this imaging or indeed anything that you produce with generative AI. You need editorial oversight. Automated oversight doesn't cut it, it and, and, and shouldn't exist. And when generative AI descends, uh, you know, on, on Australian, on the Australian, you know, eco, information ecosystem, as it will very, very soon, we need to be aware that it will impact uh, information. It will impact the imagery that we see. We need to be prepared with humans who can intervene before something is put out there into the ether that is harmful. And in this case, you know, just basically uh, embarrassing and offensive. It's the kind of, you know, the, the completion of the trope of the sexualization of women. It's 
awful, really. So if human oversight is needed, Mark, have you ever yelled at the news graphics kid at (laughs) any of the uh, publications that you've worked at? Let me be careful because I'm a salaried Channel 9 uh, employee. Uh, I'll say this. I think that the excuse profit sounded silly when it first came out. And then uh, Crikey uh, did a good little investigation where they used the exact same generative AI tool and they did it on both male and female MPs. And it did find that the female MPs, it sort of upped the sexuality in in, in the images, whereas towards the male uh, MPs, it didn't. And I don't think, and what I'll sort of feed into and agree with Monica here, that doesn't mean that it's an excuse that everyone's got lily white hands here, but I think that it does put the spotlight back on human um, humans and editors when it comes to relying on tech um, so so blithely. And I think that, you know, that's the problem with uh, tech and AI going forward is that it, it sort of, it holds up a mirror to the rest of what's happening in society because it's actually data in and then data out. And if you actually put sort of sexist, racist, you know, um, discriminatory data into the model, into the large language model or into the generative AI Photoshop tool or whatever, well, what are you going to get on the other side of it? So the tech itself is actually just using data that's been out there already and it does sort of paint a picture that there is discrimination um, in sort of like low-key discrimination that that uh, can be spat out at the other end and it, it's a bit alarming and, and it does mean that human editors are, are still going to be in jobs going forward in newsrooms. And in a sense, it's really important that this has actually happened at this point in time because remember, generative AI only really came on the scene in November, what, 2022 and newsrooms are just beginning to kind of grapple with it. If anybody wants to read more about what newsrooms are trying to do with this new technology, uh, my sentence the Centre for Media Transition has just put out a major report on this where we've canvassed all of the um, editors across newsrooms across the country and everybody's a bit confused and it was a bit of a wait-and-see approach. And I I think this one, this example has come along at the perfect time. Wait-and-see is probably not going to cut it. You actually need to be right on top of this. You need to be talking about what human intervention uh, looks like, uh, what it's going to cost you, and that will determine the degree to which you end up using generative AI. Or as one witty RN Drive listener just texted me, perhaps it's a case of degenerative AI. (laughs) Boom, boom. Thank you very much. (laughs) Let's, uh, as we slide into the weekend, uh, a lot of Australians will be switching off their phones or at least ignoring them, hopefully spending time with their families away from work. And Australians might soon get the right to tell their boss where to go when they get a call from the boss uh, out of work hours. Well, perhaps not in those exact words. You might uh, use more polite terms, I don't know. But this idea about a safeguard uh, to protect a proposed right to disconnect, uh, which is in the second tranche of the government's closing the loopholes legislation, is interesting. It's 5.27 right now on a Friday. Mark, are you going to hang up the phone and switch off the phone (laughs) and ignore the editor's emails and and, uh, questions about your journalistic uh, acumen over the weekend? No, I'm a a terrible person who will uh, gladly reply to an email at 8pm at night while watching a Netflix series and I don't think that's that big of a deal. I think that the worrying thing is that if we add more complexity or add more regulations into this sort of hybrid workplace, sort of everything is up for grabs when it comes to negotiating with your employer about your nine to five, five day a week job, be in the office, not in the office. Can I 
take the pick up the kids from school. I think that what you do is potentially create problems where bosses go, okay, well, fine, nine to five, five days a week, you've got to be in the office. And mm. I think that um, I think that every employee needs to have these conversations with their employer and just sometimes be able to tell your employer, yeah, the 10 o'clock call or the 10 o'clock email, I'm not going to reply to. But I think that sort of being a bit flexible with these things is probably the better option. I'm about to switch off my microphone for the weekend in about a minute and a half, Monica. But uh, just quickly, do you preface emails on the weekend with don't respond if you don't feel like it? Yeah, look, my employer, UTS, encourages us to have at the bottom of our emails, you know, if I work and send emails outside of standard or, or core office hours, please note you are not expected to read, respond or to action these emails outside of your working hours. So, but I mean, I'm a bit like Mark, I'm an old, st- I, I, and I'm uh, an old style journo and so I'm used to working 24-7 and I will always answer emails when I'm watching a Netflix series or whatever. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I just can't help myself if there's an email there. For me, the worst thing in the whole world is to see my inbox with five unanswered oh, emails. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah, I'm a zero inbox person uh, yeah. to that end. Once oh, a journal, no, that's psychotic behaviour. It, it definitely is. Totally. I think it's I've definitely got, I've got on the 6, spectrum. I've 6,000 unread emails, Andy, that you could come, no, uh, come and check for me. No, <laughs> Well, I'll leave you to get through them on the weekend. Don't call me. Uh, I won't answer. That's the, the rule we're going to have. Uh, Monica Attard, former host of Media Watch, now Professor of Journalism at the University of Technology. Uh, Technology Sydney and Mark DiStefano uh, joining me for the first time on uh, the Friday Wrap. He's the rear window and technology columnist at the AFR. Have a nice weekend. Switch off, why don't you? Just just try. Thank it. you so much. <laughs> we will. Thanks, guys. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.